This is the final chapter of the book of Job. This will not be the final message in the series. We'll go next week as well because there's one New Testament reference to Job in James chapter 5. So we'll conclude there next week. But this morning we're in Job chapter 42. So I'm going to read the entire chapter beginning in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, But now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has, Now therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him at his house. And they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter, Jemima, and the name of his second, Keziah, and the name of his third, Karen Hapak. And and in all of the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died, an old man and full of days. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you now and ask you that you would give us your insight from your word, that we might understand the meaning of this chapter, that we might study it, that we might not simply mentally comprehend it, but that we might glean from it things that you want to use to transform our life. 
Lord, we pray that, depending upon you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If the name Florence Chadwick means anything to you, it may be because you're somewhat familiar with her story, which in this illustration began on July 4, 1952. So Chadwick was the first woman to attempt to cross the 21 miles between Catalina Island off the coast of California and swim all the way to the California coast. And on that day, July 4th of 1952, the, the water was ice cold and the fog was, was so thick that you could barely even see the support boats that were, that were floating alongside of her to ensure that if any sharks attacked her, they could shoot them with the guns that they carried. Just short of 16 hours swimming in this water, Chadwick gave up. She stopped swimming, and she asked to be pulled from the water. And once aboard the boat, she was informed that she had stopped a half of mile from her destination. She was only a half a mile short of reaching the California coast. And when she was asked about it later by reporters, she told them, look, I'm not trying to excuse myself, but if I could have seen the land, I could have made it. And then, to the astonishment of everyone, about two months later, she turned around and did the same thing in the exact same fog conditions and the exact same temperature of the water. But this time, she just decided that she was going to stay in the water until the shoreline appeared. She was just going to stay in the water, which she did, and the shoreline did appear about 14 hours later. So Florence Chadwick then became the first woman to complete this feat, actually eclipsing the men's record by two hours. She swam in two hours less than the last man that had done it. And the observers that watched this knew that there was really, as they watched it, they saw what she did. They knew there was no secret to her accomplishment whatsoever, that she simply endured the pain until she received the prize, until she saw the prize. Now, Job 42 delivers us to the end of our story. And like Florence Chadwick, Job has endured pain, he's endured exhaustion, he's endured suffering until the prize Appeared. He, he stayed afloat in very troubled waters, continuing to stroke until there was no will to carry on, kind of swimming alone, if you will, in shark-infested waters of misery until he saw something that changed the entire way that he thought about suffering. And we know from last week and from the week before that that we know what took place. It was that God appeared, and God appeared in a whirlwind, and God issued to him these words, brace yourself like a man, because I want to talk to you, and I've got a few questions for you, Mr. Question Asker. And so God then begins to walk Job through certain features of creation, and through a kind of proverbial zoo, pointing out altogether what was about 20 different creatures noting the peculiarity of certain ones and asking Job whether he understood anything about them. It was an exercise that was all designed to reveal to Job that he lives surrounded by mystery. 
That he lives each and every day with things that are outside of his knowledge, things that are outside of his reach, things that he doesn't comprehend, things that he doesn't even know take place that go on each day. The point being, the point God was making was, how can you possibly know? How can you possibly comprehend? How can you possibly understand how your suffering fits into God's eternal plan that began before the beginning of time? And so the book of Job ends up climaxing with this, with this one transformational truth, which is that it's better to see God and to trust God than to try to be God. And Job gets it. He sees it. And that's what delivers us to chapter 42, where Job says, my eye, verse 5, my eyes have seen you. It's, it's the shoreline he's been swimming towards for 35 chapters. And so now this chapter 42 forms a kind of epilogue in the book. If you've ever read a book or you've seen an, an epilogue at the end, you'll know that an epilogue is a section of a book or a play or something that summarizes the main point and kind of begins to bring closure on the characters that are introduced or are part of the story. And so that's how chapter 42 serves in Job. It, it's a record of what happens with everyone in the story as a result of what Job saw. And so that's how, how we're going to look at it. We're going to look at what insights can be gained from the epilogue of this book because Job 42 offers a number of different insights. I'm going to confine it to just three. So think about these as Job 42 insights on suffering, and I'm going to give you three. Here's the first one. Here's the first insight I want to draw for you. This is reflective of verse chapter 42 and the entire book. Here it is. God is bigger than my suffering. Own it when you see it. God is bigger than my suffering. Own it when you see it. See, one of the effects of, of Job's encounter with God is Job's clarity about God. In other words, for Job, seeing meant knowing God in a whole new way. And as a result of seeing God in chapters, chapter 38 through 42, as a result of seeing him, there were two deep convictions that erupted within Job's heart. Two deep convictions that are kind of summarized beginning in verse 2 of chapter 42 in those words, I know. That's how he starts. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know something about you now. Didn't know it before, know it now. Two deep convictions. And these are the two convictions that it erupted from his heart. Conviction number one was, I now know that you can do all things. That you control my life. I know this in a whole new way. Verse two, I know that you can do all things and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Verse three, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand and things that are too wonderful for me which I did not know. Know them now, didn't know them then. So Job returns, and he reasserts something that every sufferer must ultimately resolve for themselves, and that is this. God controls my life, and he's bigger than my afflictions. He's bigger than my troubles. He's bigger than my tribulations and my trials. See, Job started there in chapter 1. Do you remember what happened at the end of chapter 1 after the first wave of suffering came? And Job, says, Job said, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That was his initial response. But you know what happened? The more he suffered, 
the more he lost his way. The more he suffered, the more he doubted God's good purpose. And anytime we begin to doubt God's good purpose, it opens some very dangerous dungeon doors. Here's the descent that can oftentimes happen for those that suffer. First, our suffering will linger unexpectedly because we always hope, pray, expect that suffering is going to end immediately, but suffering will linger, and therefore God begins to grow small. And when God begins to grow small, God and his ways and his purposes appear to be, to us, more arbitrary than we ever imagined. There's no meaning, it's senseless, it's pointless, it's purposeless. And that leads us into the dun- that leads us into a kind of prison of cynicism. See, cynicism towards God is, is a way that we punish God for the way that he's managing our life. It's, it's a result of our assumptions about how God is doing in controlling the life that we've given to him. And we're convinced oftentimes that we've, we've done everything right, we did it all right, we played the rules. We played for, for at work, for instance. We played by all the rules at work. Or we invested in all of our friendships faithfully. Or we loved our spouse biblically. But then suffering comes and we're still fired from the job that we feel we've been faithful at. Or, or we have a broken relationship with the friendship where we feel we've invested in. Or we suffer a divorce in a marriage where we sought to be biblical and faithful. And, and now we're left broken and trying to make sense of why our efforts to obey didn't produce the fruit that we expected to or the fruit that they were supposed to bear. And so we have this weapon of protest that we use named cynicism, what, what C.S. Lewis called the pleasure of hitting back. And we punish God by beginning to see God as hard. You are hard. You're not good. You're hard. And that begins to cloud us. That begins to frame the way we see him, we see his goodness, and we see our life and what's taking place. And I'm not saying ultimately Job got there. I'm saying Job could relate to some of that, though, because most of this book is him demanding an audience because he believes God didn't deliver on the fruit that God was supposed to deliver. God didn't deliver on the fruit that Job expected. But what happens is God reveals himself, and Job realizes something that ultimately each and every one of us must grasp, and that is God is bigger than my suffering. There is something going on here that is bigger than I can possibly comprehend. God will not appear all the time to explain it to me, but I must trust that it's happening. So there's that first conviction that erupted from Job's heart, which is that I know you control my life. You control it all. But then there was a second conviction as well, and that is that I was wrong for not seeing what was true. Remember the big header that I'm talking about here? God is bigger than my suffering. Own it when you see it. The second thing that erupted out of Job's heart was I I was wrong for not seeing what was true about you, God. See, Job doesn't simply return to a more accurate vision of God, but, you know, as if there was, this was just like a, a cognitive, mental adjustment that he needed to make. No, Job owns that he was wrong. He says in verse 5, Therefore, I despise myself 
and I repent in dust and ashes. Now, just a couple of points regarding what Job means when he says he's repenting. Job is not repenting for his sin. Because if that were the case, that would contradict a major point of the book. You know, verse 5 would, would prove that the very, the very confession that his friends were insisting upon throughout the entire story was actually necessary. Because the whole, the whole story collapses if Job is confessing the sins that he was accused of by his friends. Also, when God does appear to speak to Job's to Job, he doesn't even mention anything about Job's sin. God just reveals himself. And then Job begins to make connections that I, I was wrong. I was, I was wrong. I, isn't it funny that here we have in Job a man who was right with God but wrong about God? How's that for a slice of life? He's right with God but wrong about God. So the word repentance there is really about Job recanting. It's about Job retracting. It's about Job renouncing. It's about Job owning something about his perception, his understanding, his comprehension of God that he was wrong. And so he's recanting certain things he said. He's retracting a view of God that he had. He's renouncing his self-justification project which began in the earlier chapters and which he has been lobbying throughout the entire book. And in that, he's resolving something. He's resolving that God and God alone is the only one qualified to order and govern his life, to order and govern his suffering. So let me ask you a question this morning. Are are there any ways in your suffering that you have downsized God that you've got to own today. Maybe you're thinking back to points in this series where God has convicted you and you haven't owned it. Or maybe there's something, maybe even that cynicism point, that's landing on you in some way. Maybe like Job, you believe that, that God, God is real, but he's not good. Do you ever think about that passage in Hebrews chapter 11? And without faith, it is impossible to please him So without faith, impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God, so if we want to draw near to God, we must believe something. We must believe that He exists and He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. See, I don't know if you're like me, but oftentimes when I suffer, it's not hard for me to believe God exists. It's that other part, that He's good, that He's a rewarder of those who seek Him. And I can have hard thoughts about God. Maybe for you, it's the fact that you're suffering at all. You know, the raw truth for Western Christians is that we find suffering shocking. I know Jesus said, in the world you will have tribulation. First Peter says, don't be surprised by the fiery trials that come upon you. But we're surprised. We don't feel that should be part of our existence, even though the history of the world is one of war and disease and poverty and calamity and broken relationships, and and, and that's on a good day. But suffering surprises us because in some way, we've kind of bought into a vision of the world that is more cultural than biblical. And if that's you, maybe it's time that we all saw what Job saw. 
or see what Job saw, that suffering will come to us all. And the goal when it does is not always to understand it, but to entrust ourselves to the one who understands it. So the first point is that God is bigger than my suffering. And when you see that, and you realize you haven't been walking consistent with that, own it. Own it. Point number two. People that love you will fail you. Forgive them anyway. People that love you will fail you. Forgive them anyway. And that's where we pick up in chapter 42, verse 7, where the anger of God burns against Job's friends. And so God commands them to take seven bulls, seven rams, and offer them up as burnt offerings. And then he says, if you do that, Job will pray for you. And if Job prays for you, the Lord will accept Job's prayer. And Job does that, and God does accept the prayer. So, you know, there is, there is in, this, in this section, there is this rich vein of theology that we've got to mine here. And, and, and in mining it, we just have to step back just to appreciate the mother load that's in that very section. Because in verse 7, we discover that Job, unlike his friends, has spoken correctly about God. That's what God says about Job. He spoke correctly about me. Friends spoke incorrectly about Behold the God who pays attention to how friends speak to one another. Behold the God who pays attention to how we counsel each other. Ears open, wide, attentive, listening wanting to be accurately represented as his name is being brought into the conversation. And as a result, God is angry with his friend, Job's friends. But God is merciful and compassionate. So he is also committed to their forgiveness and their reconciliation together as friends. I mean, this is absolutely brilliant. It is brilliant. So, so what, what God does is he makes Job's friends' forgiveness dependent upon Job, dependent upon two specific things, actually, not just Job, but their obedience. In other words, they have to go get the seven bulls and the seven rams. They have to offer them up, so it requires their obedience. But then Job has to do something as well. Job must pray. Oh, please don't miss the drama here. Please don't miss what's happening here. These friends have failed this man. His suffering, in the darkest moment of his life, his suffering, which was already unimaginable to us, was because of these friends multiplied times ten by people that were trying to help him, but ultimately they were blaming him for his own suffering. You talk about blaming the victim. Oh, were they well-intended? Absolutely. Were they wrong? Oh, yes. They were very wrong. So not only did Job have to suffer, but he had to suffer the people seeking to help him while he was suffering. It's like two waves of suffering. You know, I I wish I didn't have to tell you this. But in a fallen world, we should expect to not only suffer, but we should expect that our suffering can sometimes include how well-meaning people who love us respond to our suffering. 
that there are times where part of the test that comes upon us as believers will be how those around us, those who love us, those who are connected to us, will respond to us suffering. And we have to begin to expect that and get oriented to that. That suffering isn't, isn't always just a punch. It's a combination. It can come at us as a combination, and sometimes it can knock us to the floor. And, and I don't know what that might be. You know, a, a woman, her husband has a, a miscarriage, and a well-meaning friend immediately says, well, you know, adoption's always an option. Is adoption an option? Oh, absolutely. Is it appropriate to bring that up at some point? Perhaps. Is it wise to introduce it at that moment? I don't think so. Maybe you finally get the courage to tell people about the diagnosis that came to you a few weeks ago, and somebody immediately responds back. Somebody that loves you responds back. No worries. Your faith will heal you. And they have no sense of the pressure that that puts upon you or the condemnation that can settle upon the soul when you hear something like that and how they've actually taken your suffering and multiplied it. And they would be horrified if they know, but they're just trying to help. Your child's not walking with Christ. And friends, for some reason, maybe assume the worst, that your parenting is poor rather than your parenting is faithful rather than thinking the best of you, as it says in 1 Corinthians 13, they think the worst of you. Here's the ironing at the heart of suffering. The people that love you will sometimes fail you. In fact, the people that love you will even misrepresent God. They'll take the worst moments of your life and crank up the thermostat. Now, I have good news as well. It doesn't always happen that way, and there are wise people that God puts in all of our lives, and other people will handle it well. I'm saying sometimes, and it was certainly the case for Job, that there are thoughtless, careless, insensible pieces of counsel that will come from the mouth of people that love us the most. And it's not always clear what's motivating it. Sometimes it's Sometimes it's their unbelief, like Job's wife, for instance. The defining moment came in the life of Job, and she's saying, you know what? Curse God and die. She fails her husband. But you know what? More often it's like Job's friends. It's well-intended people seeking to be helpful who don't necessarily possess the wisdom or the skills to navigate how you are suffering. And so the effect is that in the worst moments of one's life, People can fail us. You know what the lesson from Job is? Forgive them anyway. Forgive them anyway. You say, Dave, how is that even possible? Well, see, Job's friends are forgiven because of two different things. And this is where it really, this is where it really gets fascinating. Two different things, two different reasons why Job's friends are forgiven. Number one, because there's the presence of an atonement. In other words, blood was shed for them through the agency of an innocent party. Job is presented to us in Scripture as innocent. And, he, he, and, and the blood is shed as a result of what, what God has commanded. 
And they, and the way of forgiveness is opened up. See, do you, do you see what's happening here? Here again, the book points forward to one, one who would come. One who would come after Job. One whom Job points forward to. Who would experience again the betrayal of his friends. Who would experience the loss of family. Who would experience the attacks of Satan more intense than any in the past. Who would experience forsakenness by God and the absence of God. And by the way, he wouldn't simply offer up a burnt offering. He would become the burnt offering, broken for us. And he would gladly embrace that suffering and that death, that we might be forgiven, that you might be forgiven, that I might be forgiven. So Job's friends could be forgiven because of the presence of an atonement. And secondly, they could be forgiven because there was a friend who was willing to forgive them. There was a friend who was willing to be sinned against and let it end there. Now, you've heard me say this before, but it bears repeating. How we respond when we are sinned against reveals our true grasp of the gospel. How we respond when we are sinned against reveals our true grasp of the gospel. See, because Jesus paid the price for that sin, we don't need to be in relationships, whether it's our marriage, our family, our friendships. We don't need to be in that relationship to exact justice from one another. Because justice has been paid for that sin upon the cross. So we can cover it over. There is this sense where we bring into our marriages and into our families and into the relationships we have with other people in the church that you didn't get what you deserved at the cross. I didn't get what I deserved at the cross. So I'm not going to hold you hostage or God hostage until he gives you what I think you deserve, if you follow that. Actually, I'm going to do what Jesus did for me. I'm going to forgive as Christ has forgiven me. And that's what Job does. Job Job turns and forgives the very people that caused him the deepest hurt in the worst trial of his life. And you know what? Maybe you need to do the same. Maybe you need to do same. And and it might not start with you just leaving here and running to them. Maybe this is first a God thing where you are going first to God and it begins with the gospel and, and you remembering how much you have been forgiven by God. Which is what then puts you in a position to turn around and pass it along to friends that have failed you. People that love you will fail you. Forgive them anyway. And my last point is that the end will be good. The end will be good. Suspend judgment until then. Suspend judgment until then. And here we come to the end of our story, an end that is summarized aptly in verse 10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job. In fact, he says it again a little further after he prayed for his friends, and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. 
So now at the end, Job is shown this extraordinary sympathy, this extraordinary comfort by his family and friends. He's given gifts. His assets have doubled. He has 10 more kids. Three of them are beautiful daughters, and I don't know why exactly that's included. I don't know if the guys, the sons were ugly, and so the daughters are set in contrast to them. I'm not sure, but the point is he's given his, his, his family the same amount. He lost three, three daughters, ten, seven sons. Those are, he has ten new kids. He's given an inheritance, or he gives them an inheritance, and then it kind of concludes by saying he lives this long life seeing his great great-grandchildren. And Job died, verse 17, an old man and full of days. That epitaph, by the way, is reserved for only the most faithful people in Scripture. So let's just stop for a second. Let's interact a bit with, with this portion of Job and ask some rather obvious questions. What in the world are we supposed to make of that? Are these now rewards of Job's virtue, or is it something else? Is, is this a paradigm that we should all expect after we have suffered? And I want to say that the conclusion of Job and how this book ends says at least, at least three different things, and I'm going to review these real quickly, but just to give you a sense of what's being communicated by this turn and these blessings that are flowing to Job. What's being communicated here? Number one, of what's being communicated is that the test is over. The test is over. The the blessings that come to Job are not rewards for his virtue, because that would contradict the entire point of the book of Job, by the way, that somehow suffering and sin is this one-to-one ratio. That's disabused through the whole intent of the book. But this conclusion reveals that the trial is over and that God is merciful to give grace. This is supposed to display the grace and the mercy and the compassion of God. This does not happen because Job has merited these blessings, but because God is merciful. And I say that, by the way, not just because I read it in a commentary, but on the authority of how Job is interpreted by James in James chapter 5, verse 11, where James says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and this is what we're going to talk about next week. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So James's take home of the entire book of Job and the end of the book of Job is that God is compassionate, God is merciful, and that's displayed in particular by the blessings that he pours out upon Job. They are a sign of God's mercy, not Job's merit. So the test is over. Number two, God has won the wager. God defeated the lies of Satan, and so God wanted to reverse the effects of the work of Satan, which is what God does, it's what the gospel does, it's how the gospel works in the life of the believer. It breaks the lies of Satan, reverses the effects of Satan. And in so doing, I think foreshadowed Satan's binding through the work of Jesus Christ and Satan's ultimate destruction at the end of the age. It's basically telling readers that a future is coming when Satan's evil will be destroyed, when Satan's evil will be totally devastated and annihilated, and the end that's going to come, the end will be sweet, the end will be good. 
but it's not here yet. It's not here yet. We still live in a very broken world. And even at the end of Job, it's not like, it's not like God scrubs his past clean. This is a man that has suffered the loss of his entire family. I mean, I, I, he's being comforted at the end, but he still suffered the loss. I mean, if, you're, if your spouse died in the Boston Marathon bombing or on, on 9-11, you may enjoy the comfort of friends and you may be rich because of an insurance settlement and you may eventually remarry and experience some comfort from that, but you will live with loss for the rest of your life. Job was a man who limped for the rest of his life. But God won the wager. So the test was over. God won the wager. And ultimately, this is intended to communicate to us that the best is yet to come. If you're here this morning and you're a believer, good things await you. Whether you're in the middle of suffering or not, good things await you. If Jesus is your Lord, you have an exceptional future ahead of you. Now, there are, there are times where, like Job, God will grant a kind of public reversal. You'll get a huge bounce in the next season after suffering, and your cause will be vindicated, and your name will be cleared. But there are other people, other believers, those that believe in Jesus, that, that suffer and strive for reasons that are wholly inexplicable, and do so until their body fails and they stand in the presence of the Lord. In other words, some people receive perceptible blessings sooner, others later. But the lesson from Job that comes to us from chapter 42 is that the best is yet to come, that this future awaits us all. And I guess my, my final appeal to you in light of that is that since the end will be good, let us suspend judgment on God until then. You know what I mean by that? You know what I mean by that? We all have this impulse to want to assign blame to God when things don't go the way we expect. Some of us are, are suffering now. Some of us will suffer in the future. All of us know people that are suffering. What do they need the most? What do we need the most? See, Job teaches that sometimes faith is not about moving mountains or claiming healings and miracles. It's simply about enduring mystery. Job teaches us that faith is not simply about moving mountains and claiming healing, but sometimes it's just about withholding judgment upon God's wisdom. Stop assuming we know what God is doing. Stop assuming that we can perceive the work of God and the ways of God in all that's taking place in our life. You know, I noticed something about myself, and that... that, that the best measure of my trust in God is seen by what I say when I suffer. Let me, let me say that again so you get it. The best measure of my trust in God is seen by what I say when I suffer. 
You want to know how much faith I have or trust I have? Look at what I say when I suffer. Because when I suffer, I can be very tempted to feel sorry for myself because I think I'm not getting what I really deserve. And so I've got this thing with self-pity. I've got this relationship I'm in with self-pity that's it can visit me from time to time. Self-pity is like a companion. It visits my fellowship group. It visits me at night. It visits me in the morning. And here's the message that self-pity is always preaching to me. Dave, you are good, and you deserve good. And then I start agreeing with self-pity. In fact, I up the ante, and I say, yeah, I am good, and I deserve good, and God is doing me bad. I'm a good person. God's doing me bad, and therefore I'm a victim, and I actually, actually I'm being victimized by God. Do you see what happens here? See, I've made God bad, the victimizer, and myself good, so everybody needs to be sympathetic with me. So for me, and probably for you, the best measure of our trust in God is seen by what we say when we suffer. Because self-pity downsizes God, makes him something he's not. Self-pity can sometimes silence us as well. In other words, it's not what we say, it's what we don't say. So, Kim and I are on our way home from the fellowship group just this past week, and, and Kim says to me, you know, it's, it's really funny how before we went to fellowship group, you were sharing with me certain struggles you were having about our situation, but you said little about it during fellowship group, and yet we were talking about the very thing you were talking about before fellowship group. She said, why is that? And I tried to justify it with her, justify it in my own mind, until I realized, you know what? In reality, I, I was just too discouraged to talk. I was too discouraged to talk, and so I didn't talk. Which, you know, that's a really intelligent thing to do, isn't it? Yeah, I'm too discouraged to talk about where I need help in the very place where I can get help. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's like walking into the emergency room with a broken arm saying, I'm too discouraged with my broken arm to see the doctor so that he can help me with my broken arm. In which they would say, great, why don't we show you the psych ward? Do you know how many Christians get sidelined because of self-pity? Christians don't change sides. They say, I'm done. I'm not going to follow God anymore. I'm going to follow Satan. They, they don't change sides. They just withdraw from the battle, go over to the infirmary, and ponder their pain for a few years. And if we get on that carousel of self-pity, we can stay on there a very long time. And I understand it. Believe me, I understand it. Eventually, I felt so convicted that I wrote my fellowship group an email to tell them what an idiot I really am. By the way, I, I, I thank God for our fellowship groups. I thank God for your fellowship group. I, I hope you're using, I hope you don't follow my example from this past week. I hope you're using them as a place to talk about where you need prayer, where you need help, where you need encouragement, where you are suffering. Why? Because the best measure of our trust in God is seen by what we say when we suffer. Job was commended by what he said about God when he suffered. That's what verse, chapter 42, verse 7 is all about. For you have not spoken to me, this is God speaking about Job's friends, you have not spoken to me correctly as Job my servant has. He's commended for his faith. See, see, what faith does is faith says, I may not know why, but I trust the one who does know why. 
Faith says, yeah, God's purpose is a mystery, but God's character is not a mystery. I know that he is good. Therefore, I will suspend judgment until I see that goodness. Can I encourage you this morning with whatever is filling your mind at this moment, whatever area of suffering is coming to your mind right now, the end will be good. The end will be good because God is good, and God is about a good work to bring good fruit for a good end in your life. So resist self-pity. Suspend judgment. Keep moving forward. Just like Florence Chadwick. Keep moving forward. Remember the swimmer from the opening illustration? Keep moving forward. She endured the pain until she could see the prize. And we too must continue to to stroke hard in the shark-infested waters of suffering until the Savior bids us.